HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is being brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, believers in good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. All right, all right. It is Monday. It's one at uh, twelve o'clock, and this is what doesn't kill you. Ah, food industry insights. My name is Katie Kiefer. I'm your host, and this is the Heritage Radio Network. <clears throat> a listener supported non-commercial station people hit the donate button okay all right let's start off with joys and stars we have a really cool show today um uh, many of you may remember uh, about a year or no i've been following the story for almost two years bill stowe the ceo of the des moines waterworks will be joining me later today to talk about one uh the uh supreme iowa state supreme court case he just lost two his fending, pending federal case and three the attempted coup d'etat of the state of iowa to basically dissolve the Des Moines Waterworks so that they don't have to listen to his sorry ass anymore. I guess that's the point. But anyway, he'll be up in just a few minutes. In the meantime, it's joys and sorrows. So um, here's, you know, I collect these all week. So, and by the way, send in your own. If you want to go on my show page or you want to go on my Facebook page for What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights, please do. And, you know, tell me what your joys and sorrows are. I'd love to include some from my listeners. So um, just just a reminder that I have those outlets. Um, here's my first one. Cole County Republican or rather coal country Republicans, that would be Kentucky, you know, Oklahoma, et cetera, uh, West Virginia. Coal country Republicans set to cut mine safety regulations. This was in the Huffington Post about a week ago. A bill approved by Kentucky lawmakers on Tuesday would cut back the number of state inspections of coal mines per year, and it would allow the state's Department of Natural Resources to substitute some of those safety inspections with what's known as safety analyses. Conveniently for the coal operators, those analyses do not pose the threat of citations or fines. Quote, if anything, federal policing of the coal industry will probably be scaled back under the Trump administration because President Donald Trump and congressional Republicans have been peeling back all manner of regulations on businesses, including the coal companies. And remember, Trump's new Commerce Secretary, billionaire investor Wilbur Ross, owned the Sago mine in West Virginia in 2006, where an explosion there cost the lines 
lives of 12 miners. And although the White House has not yet installed a new head of mine safety, Trump had complained on the campaign trail that mining regulations were way too tough. Coal operators could barely survive, he lamented. I have have friends that own the mines, he said at a campaign event in Pennsylvania. I mean, they can't live. Cry me a frickin' river, okay? I hate, hate, hate these people. You know, I mean, I I live in a state of like, I, I'm, and I know I'm not alone, of just like heightened exasperation. I mean, it's there's no wonder that my own waterworks are constantly uh, erupting. Okay, that was in the Huffington Post, by the way, on March 15th, if you want to read more about it. Um, also, I would like to point out that the only adult in the room appears to be Secretary of Defense James Mattis. And who would ever have thought that someone whose nickname is Mad Dog might actually be trustworthy? He <laughs> he has broken with the rest of the clown show and has acknowledged that not only is climate change real, but it's actually a threat to our national security. Go figure. So maybe we actually do need a military coup. What do you say, folks? Um, Okay, and then I wanted to um, remind you that if you didn't send your postcards on the Ides of March, like remember we were all supposed to like write a lot of postcards to Trump, to McConnell, to Ryan, uh, complaining about all the things that we hate about what they're doing. Um, I actually will tell you, I did write my postcards. I read about 20 of them. Um, But I think I'm going to keep it up. I'm going to keep doing it pretty much every day. Those little 34-cent postcards that are already stamped that you can buy at the, at the post office, they're great. And you just keep a little stack of them. And whenever something in the news hits your eye and you think, I won't stand for that, then you just write yourself a postcard. And the cool thing about them is that you don't, you know, you don't have any obligation to identify yourself. So you can really get kind of wacky on them. And I know I have. Uh, I've been waxing quite biblical, as a matter of fact. And I, I find words like, like, um, like shame and infamy <laughs> figure large in block letters on my postcards. It's really kind of fun. Um, it's very apop- apocalyptic and, and cathartic. And, um, and especially when you're writing to that unspeakable hypocrite, uh, Paul Ryan, who purports to be a Christian, I'm not a fan of organized religion, but, um, but anyway, you know, if you call yourself a Christian, presumably you have studied some of the Christian values. Um, he doesn't appear to include those in his version of Christianity, but I really like to let him know. And I send these to his home. So maybe his wife and kids will read them that he and his family will burn both on earth and in hell for denying climate change. So that's, do your thing. Okay, here's another really gross story. Uh, Brazilian beef. Um, You know, we did not import Brazilian beef for about 13 or 14 years because they had hoof and mouth disease. Um, But last year, we lifted our ban on Brazilian beef. And God knows, you know, here's what happens. You lift the ban and by God, they start shipping your rotten meat. So remember when cool was repealed the country of origin labeling? I mean, most of us really liked that law. But it was repealed because our trading partners, uh, Canada and Mexico, uh, were going to sue us for some, I don't know, I think it was $13 billion in fines, something like that. Anyway, just so you know, JBS and BRF, which is Brazil Foods, JBS is Swift and something else that combined a few years ago. In any case, they are the two biggest players in, uh, in Brazil, and they were shipping out literally millions of pounds of rotten ground beef because they can. Um, and, uh, they were bribing inspectors to just, 
you know, look the other way when that was happened. So what they were doing was mixing up in order to mask the smell of rotting meat. They would mix in um, some sorts of chemicals um, or they would mix fresh product with rotting product. And of course, they were also adding weight by adulterating them with water and manioc flour. So um, I really should do a few shows on food fraud, I think, because it's a $40 billion international business. And people are, I mean, it just doesn't get covered enough. I mean, I was this, this came from a trade magazine. This did not come from mainstream media. So, I mean, lucky for us, we're not China and Russia who import literally billions of pounds of beef from Brazil. But still, get your beef ground by your butcher. You know what I mean? Like, buy it from a reputable source. I, ugh. It just makes me sick. Okay, now here's the good news for today. Here's the joy. It turns out that those of you who thought that cheese was really crack were right. The LA Times <laughs> reported that um, the U.S. National Library of Medicine studied foods that generate addictive behavior in uh, in subjects in about 500 people, and cheese came in very high on that list. Why? Because the protein casein contains casomorphins, and casomorphins make your dopamine receptors dance, and that makes cheese addictive. So I can't help myself. I mean, I am a cheese addict. I, I like to call myself a cheeseaholic, um, but uh, you know, worse it could you could be addicted to worse things, I suppose, than cheese. But I am I am wearing <laughs> I'm wearing a lot of it right now. <laughs> And I'll probably have a heart attack because I do have high cholesterol. Anyway, that's it for Joys and Sorrows today. Um, we're going to uh, take a short commercial break, and we'll be right back with Bill Stowe from the Des Moines Waterworks, and we'll learn about what's going on there um, in great detail, and I'm looking forward to it. So stay tuned. Bob's Red Mill has been milling whole grains since 1978. One of the nice things about Bob's Red Mill is it's the only that I know of national supplier that's easily available for lots of interesting, hard-to-get grains and other seed products. So, you know, before Bob's Red Mill became widely available, you couldn't go get something like quinoa very easily, or you couldn't go get spelt easily in small quantities. But now you go to any one of the huge number of stores that carry Bob's Red Mill, and you can get smaller amounts of these really interesting, fun things to play with. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. And I'm proud to be sponsored by Bob's Red Mill, one of my favorite companies for sure. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. My guest today is Bill Stowe, the CEO and general manager of the Des Moines Waterworks. It is a regional utility that protects public health and promotes economic development by delivering outstanding quality water affordably in reliable quantities, which is what you want a waterworks to do. The Des Moines Waterworks works closely with businesses, environmental, consumer, and agricultural leaders to advocate for better stewardship of water resources and clean water initiatives throughout central Iowa. Mr. Stowe sits on the board of directors of the Association of the Metropolitan Water Agencies, representing the largest drinking water utilities in North America, and he is a member of the American Society of Civil Engineers and a member of the Iowa Bar Association. So way to make the rest of us feel bad, Mr. Multi-Degree. Welcome back to the show. <laughs> 
Uh, Katie, you're too, you're too kind. You're too kind. Not Sorry at all. for that puffery. Uh, I love but, the uh, puffery. It's great to be with you. Thanks. Well, it makes me look good. If I have guests like you on, it makes me look like I'm smarter. So there you go. Um, you have been a very naughty boy, apparently. <laughs> well, apparently, gosh, yeah. we've had a kind of a rough sixty days here, and uh, the nightmare quite hasn't ended yet. Not so quite. We'll, we'll we'll keep fighting through it. Well, we have an attempted coup d'état on our hands, but we're going to get to that in a minute. I want you to recap for listeners what has been going on in the. Moines Waterworks for the last two years. And then um, what happened in January when the Supreme Court ruling came down uh, on your case? What What was that all about? You know, essentially in the last several years, we have continued to see nitrate concentrations and agrotoxin uh, pollutant coming down our rivers in extraordinary uh, concentrations in a way that caused us a couple years ago to warn uh, folks upriver that we would file a lawsuit in the event that they didn't better control what's coming through drainage systems under ag fields into the Raccoon and Des Moines rivers. Uh, They ignored that. We filed a lawsuit. A portion of the lawsuit had both uh, state and federal claims. The state Supreme Court uh, dismissed out our state claims, and unfortunately, the federal court, uh, late Friday, uh, also dismissed out our claims. No. Uh, and if, if that weren't enough, uh, the Iowa legislature, uh, with a new Republican majority in both uh, houses of the Senate uh, and the state house, as well as the governor, have uh, taken an opportunity to, under state law, essentially disband uh, the Des Moines Waterworks, which is an independent uh, uh, entity under state law, and uh, move our assets and our governance under uh, the city government. So there you go. Holy smoke zone. I was not aware of the development on Friday. I actually should have checked in with your assistant, Lauren, about that, because I I, I would have... um Altered my questions late, but no big deal. But let's 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 pick this apart because your suit. I'm reading from the the newspapers in, uh, around in January around the um, the Supreme Court ruling. Um, your suit requested damages from three upriver counties, but and I'm going to quote here: paying damages would have been an enormous burden that I don't know we could have financially survived," said Colin McCullough, a drainage district attorney for Sac County, Des Moines. Um, and then, how, so and, and that was in the Des Moines Register on the 28th of January. So. What what does he mean by that? Like, what does he say? I, we wouldn't have survived the damages. Who would pay them? Who would have been paying them? Would it have been individual well, I, farming entities? The producers, well, the producers would end up paying it, I think, is his mm-hmm. point. And, you know, from our vantage, sustainable agriculture necessarily involves uh, being responsible for the costs of production. So that, to us, is a huge misfire. It certainly has its own kind of red meat uh, attraction to folks who think that we're trying to break agriculture somehow. But one of our the themes of our litigation and our continued uh, discussion about public policy as it relates to ag subsidies in particular mm-hmm. is that corn, soybean, and CAFO production creates externalities, costs that aren't borne by the producer are pushed downstream to us right. um, as consumers and that uh, really they should bear the cost of production. We heavily subsidize agriculture, as you know, yeah. uh, as taxpayers in the United States. Lots of subsidies are going to production agriculture. We, unfortunately, are seeing the downside of that um, by paying additional costs to treat our water here, and it's creating a public health risk in our view. But that was a major theme of our uh, litigation and our public co- policy concern and mm-hmm. the idea that the sky is falling and 
uh, poor farmers just can't bear up to the cost of having to clean up water before they um, push it into the waters of the United States just seems to us to be a, a pretty absurd view. It's a little bit like a, you know U.S. Steel or uh, Exxon or whomever is a point source air polluter saying, gosh, right. we can't afford to clean up <laughs> uh, the air before we push it out of our factories. So uh, it's certainly a theme that they've tried to articulate, not one that we buy into. Absolutely not. And now tell me, so what is the local, like how in the in the wake of the the federal court throwing your case out um, and then and then the attempted coup of, you know, dissolving the waterworks, what is the, how does the municipality, what is the mayor of Des Moines saying about this? What is the municipality saying? Um, because after all, it's your consumers that are being polluted, right? So uh, what kind of support the, are you getting? The mayor here has been pretty ambiguous about what his position oh, is. The sake. city generally has been supportive of the coup d'etat, that is, of disbanding us. Yeah. And we think that's, you know, for political pressure, but also as a utility, we have a number of assets, income assets, I see. that the city would like to have to bolster their coffers. But at the end of the day, what we're hearing from our ratepayers, our residents, uh, is very much in support of Waterworks. We know that uh, safe drinking water means separate rate structures and distance from the politics of municipal government. Uh, we're confident, ultimately, that our position is going to prevail, and uh, we believe there are uh, leaders in the Republican uh, legislature that view our position as being uh, the right one that is supportive of home rule against the state interfering mm-hmm. in local politics, and we right. think ultimately we're going to prevail. Oh, I hope so. So, how what's your strategy? Like, what do how do you protect yourself against um, the bill that uh, Jared? What's his name? Jared Klein. Jared. Cohen? Jared Klein. Jared yeah. Klein. Yeah. Maybe we should talk about that for uh, just yeah, a second. Let's. I said in the middle of the state in what for us is the urban suburban area, about 500,000 folks here in the area. Uh, Representative Klein is uh, a member of the Iowa Pork Producers, the Iowa Farm Bureau, of and the course. Iowa Corn Growers Association. <laughs> He's from a he, – yeah, if that, those aren't interesting credentials uh, to deal with a city governance issue, I don't know what are. He sits about 100 miles away from us. Right. Uh, and initially his excuse for doing this is that he wanted to – provide an opportunity for uh, greater regional discussions in this area of the state. Right. Now, he was talking about the suburbs, right? amended to get rid of all yeah. that, and it's just a, a hostile takeover, basically. But, mm-hmm. yeah, very interesting uh, get-even kind of philosophy going on there, at least in our view, and one that goes against the grain of good government, where independent water boards are pretty important to protect yeah. against uh, political influences from electives. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm still kind of just reeling from the idea that the, that your suit was dismissed from federal court, just like, boom. Well, so what might happened? be. Um, Why the, did the, that the, happen? The, First the of all, your date wasn't... side of all that yeah. is this. Uh, the governor of this state and the Iowa Secretary of Agriculture, as well as a number of leaders in the political system, have said that our lawsuit was a distraction and taking resources away from voluntary conservation practices and from cleaning up the environment. Well, with victory lies the responsibility, and to some degree now it's fully in their lap. Um, uh, They need to deliver on the promises that they've made for four years through the nutrient reduction strategy that essentially says voluntary uh, conservation practices from agri-producers will lead to environmental protection and improvement in the environment. Well, now 
you can rest assured right. we'll be watching that. Yeah, very put closely. your money where your mouth is, folks. Because why is it suddenly affordable? When <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, why is it now affordable if it's? I, I, yeah, great question. Great question. Uh, it's really, just a matter of I guess the pace of which you're going to protect the environment. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe they'll do it the next hundred years. We'll see. Well, that brings me to another question, actually. Um, that. Uh, let me see where that is. Oh, yes. I was struck by, uh, when I was reading the newspaper coverage, uh, by the following statement, quote, Waterworks hoped to reverse nearly a century of legal precedent that's given the district's immunity from being sued for damages. That would be the district's, up, the county's upriver. Up right. The utility argues right. the protection relieves the drainage districts of responsibility to limit farm runoff into streams and rivers. So, in other words, it has not been, those regulations or whatever the, you know, whatever you call those instruments that prevent <laughs> farms from polluting. Um, that hasn't been changed in a hundred years, despite the fundamental changes in farming techniques. Um, and, the- and, and you've got a uh, absolutely I mean, dead center. Amazing. This is a state that's very dominated by agricultural politics. A uh, hundred years plus ago, uh, public improvement processes, uh, projects upstream had public money put into drainage systems of farm fields that are now leading to more water and worse quality water coming into the streams and rivers. Uh, That's been around for a long time, uh, and it was premised on the idea that you just move water away from farm fields because we're in an area of the country that has uh, more water rather than less water most yeah. of the time, even with climate change. Um, so getting water away from fields was the state's priority. Any kind of downstream impacts in terms of flooding or in terms of public health from poor water quality uh, weren't contemplated by the legislature 100 plus years right. ago. So <laughs> we certainly have tried to move the needle on that because the science is certainly caught up with the uh, failings of those premises. But unfortunately, uh, to date, our legal system and our public policy hasn't caught up to a realization that uh, letting industrial ag do whatever they want with no consequences uh, downstream is uh, a failed policy that will just lead to catastrophe. I, I, it's, it's already le- – I mean, your ratepayers, I'm sure, have seen a great increase in their rates for getting clean water. Um, you yourself uh, have talked multiple times about the fact that you don't even have infrastructure that is capable of delivering um, – without some difficulty, the, the delivering the clean water that you need. I mean, in other words, your infrastructure is, is old and it's not built to strain out as much of the phosphorus and fertilizer and, and CAFO runoff and everything Absolutely. else. It's, it's just not built to do that and that you would need a massive injection of cash just to make it really to make the water safe in Des Moines. And I remember from my visit there a couple of years ago that um, that literally the water stank so badly in the city and coming out of the taps. I was just stunned by that. And then when I, I mentioned it to my hotel, you know, whatever it was, and they said, oh, nobody drinks the water out of the tap here. Like, you know, I mean, it was just, I couldn't believe it because in New York, we totally pride ourselves on our wonderful quality drinking water, you know. And, uh, you know, to me, to not be, consider that an absolute fundamental right is sort of extraordinary. But I, there was one more thing I wanted to bring up about you, and then I'd like to talk uh, sort of on, at, at a, about a bigger picture in terms of infrastructure and water for uh, other municipalities. Um, here was another quote from that uh, Des, Moines, uh, Des Moines Register article. It was, um, quote, it renews hope that the federal district judge will dismiss the case 
which he has. And Des Moines Waterworks will abandon its expensive and divisive litigation, said Roland Schnell, president of the Iowa Soybean Association Board. Um, it also renews our optimism that the utility will engage in a cooperative approach with rural Iowa to make real and long-lasting improvements. Now, isn't it true that before you brought this suit two years ago, that you made a serious attempt to engage in cooperative approach, and you well, were unable to persuade that? Katie. We've been involved in uh, cooperative approaches for decades with uh, upstream producers. The reality is that um, that cooperation became almost co-optation. Uh, yeah. It was greenwash, and nothing was coming out of it in terms of results. We mm-hmm. continue to see... Uh, horrible water quality in the streams, rivers, and lakes in the state. And at some point, you know, we've just called the question on whether that kind of feel-good discussion is in the best interests of our customers. Right. Uh, we've been made out as the villain in this on a regular basis. Well, this is exactly you know, real, what I wanted to ask we're, you. We're big boys and big girls. We can we can handle that. The reality is that. Uh, whether it's Gulf Coast hypoxia that we continue to see uh, marching forward in a very destructive way, or whether it's water quality uh, most locally here in our rivers that are part of the Mississippi River Valley. We're seeing industrial ag continue to get a free drop. Uh, It's the Wild West. Whatever they do and whatever they put in the rivers uh, is acceptable so long as we hide behind this screen of voluntary conservation and uh, uh, a sprinkling of good practice practices out there. We want to see results. We're going to continue to want to see results. And certainly the net result of all of these court rulings is that the people who are ultimately responsible for this are the producers. And if Mm -hmm. anyone is going to step forward to be able to deal with them, it has to be our state legislature. And those are not parties that have been uh, willing to do anything other than hide behind cooperative and collaborative cliches. (laughs) We'll now see if there's any substance there. Well, I I think we know what that's going to be like. Um, But I'm going to, I got to ask you, Bill, I mean, are you like, why Why does the Des Moines Register report this as if you are the villain rather than the hero? I mean, this is your city paper. So why are you the bad guy here? Well, the, the Register has, I think, been fairly balanced. We can't, you know, we're uh, not going to talk about um, so-called judges or fake news. You know, that we're in a democracy. We have to learn to lose and sure. uh, move forward. And that includes not attacking the media. The media, actually, the Register has been fairly balanced. They've written a number of different articles uh, that have been positive towards us and towards our concerns here. But the the reality is that industrial ag continues to see any opposition to the unsustainable practices that they buy into as villainous and anti-agriculture and right. trying to, you know, kill a food system that will end up in starvation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we, we don't buy that, and uh, no. we don't think that our consumers and voters in this state buy it. So we're confident that we're on the right side of history in this, but we're certainly taking some short-term lumps for it. Yeah, you are. Um, but let's 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 talk a little bit about um, because Des Moines is not alone <laughs> in this problem. Uh, for example, Toledo, not. which I've also reported on with um, my buddy Tom Philpot, um, you know, for a couple of uh, summers past now, they've had to um, tell people not to drink the water because of the agricultural effluent in Lake Erie. Um, so they have a very similar problem, and I'm sure there. And I know that there are other uh, towns and municipalities in Ohio, also another big ag-heavy state, um, that. Are suffering from similar issues. So, how, do you guys ever like get together to talk? You know, like, is there? 
I, what I'm looking for is, is, is whether or not Absolutely. there's sort of a coalition building um, thing going on in terms of people like yourself who are part of a municipality that is, that is um, you know, duty bound to provide clean water for their, for their residents. Like, are you guys talking to each other? What's happening? Uh, there's no question that by necessity, a number of us who uh, typically operate pretty independently don't have the resources nor the coordination uh, at the national level that industrial ag does are by necessity uh, talking on a regular basis. I'm part of a Lake Erie study group, so I'm very familiar with what's going on in northern Ohio that is leading to the continued pollution of the Great Lakes generally. Um, And this is an issue that by necessity is driving a number of us together. Uh, If that weren't enough, certainly concerned about national um, implications of the EPA falling back and right. their vigilance. So I think what will come out of that um, is a number of states and local uh, water producers uh, stepping up on a more regular basis and coordinating their efforts just out of necessity because uh, Toledo, as an example, as you know, lost their drinking water a few years ago because yeah. of cyanotoxins, blue-green algae. We'll see more of that, unfortunately, and out of necessity will come uh, a greater coordinated view of how to push back against this Ohio um, and the Ohio Farm Bureau have actually been very cooperative in working uh, a number of restrictions on production that are better protecting the lake. Uh, you mentioned New York earlier in your pride. Uh, we still are in a state that's very dominated by industrial agricultural politics. Mm-hmm. Um, we think we'll crack through that eventually, hopefully with a minimum uh, amount of catastrophe. But um, the the prospects in the short term are pretty bleak, obviously. They do seem bleak. I mean, it really does, especially as you po- you know, let's talk for a second. Let's use this opportunity to talk about the EPA and Scott mm-hmm. Pruitt. Um your suit was predicated on sort of a factor of a, um, you know, an, a facet of the Clean Water Act. Um, yes. What? Well, now we know the federal court has thrown your suit out, so that that takes that question away. But I mean, because the Clean Water Act is likely to be rolled back significantly under this administration, I mean, what other what other um, ammunition? legal ammunition do uh, municipalities and, and, and organizations like yours have against big polluters? Like what, what uh, you know, if, 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 if clean water as a fundamental right does not sway legislators, like I don't know what will. So I, you know, I'm, I'm looking for, you know, for you guys to figure out like when we don't have the EPA backing us up and we don't have the, you know, what, what are you guys going to use for ammo? Well, great question. And uh, we're seeing leadership in a number of different ways uh, away from the EPA. You see Governor Brown and the California legislature, you know, really asserting themselves as an example. It's a pretty inefficient way of doing it. We're part of the Mississippi River Valley. Um, and certainly uh, when there are national and international issues going on, you would hope that uh, central government would be more assertive mm-hmm. in the absence of that um, assertiveness. Uh, local communities are going to have to step forward, and that often, in my experience, comes out of crisis. We're going to have right. water issues, whether it's from cyanotoxins or blue-green algae, whatever it may be, or nutrients more generally, like nitrate concentrations in right. the Midwest. 
there'll be circumstances that are going to push that. But I am optimistic that as the science gets better and our understanding of public health consequences get better, uh, voters, consumers will support uh, and insist on initiatives to move forward that's going to better protect our environment. The environmental um, consequences continue to pop up, and I think our consumers and voters hopefully are being more informed by programs like this about the risks of the current unsustainable agricultural model. Yes, I would hope so. <laughs> but I mean, you that me does, both. well, you know, because it does address that sort of fundamental divide between Republicans and Democrats, where Republicans think that, you know, the federal government should have nothing to say about what states do with state assets, including their water, right? So, I mean, it's, it's, you know, these are people who continue to vote in their own worst interests. And, you know, I find that very troubling in terms of like, you know, trying to clean up these problems on a, on a sort of national basis and allocating funds and resources on a national basis. But um, let's talk a little bit about the infrastructure of um, in the United States that carries water, because if it's whether <laughs> it's whether it's because you're an engineer. So whether it's, you know, whether it's effluent, uh, you know, fertilizer, effluent from CAFOs, whatever, or whether it's lead in the pipes like Flint, um, you know, we have a crisis, in my opinion, we have an ongoing crisis in how um, how we are going to continue to receive clean water um, in the next decade or so without committing an enormous amount of resources to upgrading our um, our water infrastructure. So can you talk a little bit about that as an engineer? Like what would be the best way to to educate people that this is a problem? <laughs> like, I don't think people uh, even freaking think that. about it. Uh, let me start with this premise, and the premise is you and I and all of your listeners are going to be paying more for uh, drinking water as time goes on because uh, we're behind the curve in the United States as to infrastructure, and even the current administration understands that and uh, appears to have an emphasis on infrastructure improvement. But whether you're in New York or you're in Iowa or you're in Ohio or California, we have aging systems and surface transportation and underground uh, systems like sewer and water and yeah. telecommunications, railroads, electrical systems, whatever it may be. Um, we have shirked our responsibility as managers and as consumers to fund that. We're going to see that change, obviously, and that's going to be more costly for all of us as consumers. Um, but I do believe that there is an increasing appreciation on behalf of consumers when you put a good case in front of them for rate increases of acceptance to that, because I think most of us understand that an interstate system or an electrical system or underground pipes uh, require investment. And we have often taken a short-term approach that says, oh, we're going to have uh, small rate increases or no rate increases uh, and defer maintenance. That deferred maintenance is kind of like, you know, not changing the oil in your car. Right. You can decide not to do that for a while, but sooner or later it'll catch up to you in a far more expensive way. And I think we're going to see more of that catching up, if you will, in infrastructure across the United States. Well, I, I hope so. I hope you're right, because, I mean, my sense from the Trump administration, from what one has seen so far, when he talks about improving infrastructure, he's talking about awarding large contracts to his buddies in, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, the people who in, in the petroleum, petro, petrochemical industry. So that would be like, OK, mm -hmm. roads, maybe, maybe roads, maybe. 
maybe train tracks. Oh, yeah. I don't, you or, know, but uh, maybe walls between us and Mexico. Yeah. That's infrastructure, <laughs> yeah. right? Let's, uh, by all means, let's spend twenty-three billion on that. In terms of supporting economic and social development, but uh, yeah. it definitely has a different view of the world. I think uh, local governments, again, and local authorities, whether they're sewer or water or telecommunications or uh, electric utilities, as an example, will uh, step forward out of necessity mm. and out of good management and good planning. Uh, we, we can't talk about climate change, apparently, if we're federal employees with any rigor anymore. But as we get more data and more experience about flooding and droughts and cold yeah. and hot, uh, it's going to require us to invest more in our infrastructure to protect all of us from things that we've been able to take advantage of, but uh, without a lot of investment. But that uh, curve is quickly coming to an end. Yeah, clearly. I mean, because as we've just reviewed, the infrastructure for water carrying water to and from cities um, or even to in and out of rural counties is is at best 75 years old, right? Uh, at be, yeah, at best, at and probably best. far older and than probably that, far older. I, in, most, in most cities. I mean, I know that in New York we have three main tunnels or that bring water to us, and two of them basically are 100 years plus old. And there's going to come a moment of reckoning here in the state of New York if we want to continue to, you know, enjoy the clean water that we do, where we're going to have to deal with that and pay for it. And I know that uh, Cuomo is definitely kicking that can down the road. I don't think I don't I've never I've not heard one word about it, even though I hear that it's an issue. I don't hear that there's any bond proposal or anything that would raise the funds to to get working on that. But I could be wrong. And I hope I am. Um, Why do you think that? Things like water quality um, are so low on the consumer radar. You know what I mean? Like it barely. It's only when there's stories like yours or Flint or Toledo that people ever think about water, and yet water is so fundamental. And I, I just find it curious that there's no like there's no press around it. Really, there's no. You know, like the public awareness campaign that we need to help you guys do your job is totally lacking. And I, I, you know, I want to kind of close with like a discussion about how we can raise that awareness, because not only will we be facing these water shortages as climate change escalates, um, but we also have these obvious infrastructure problems and the, you know, and all of the other related issues that we've been discussing. So what, what, what can we do? Like, how can we create a public campaign? What would be your, your best case scenario for raising um, consumer awareness so that you can potentially uh, influence states to legislate for more for more infrastructural repair or solicit more money from the federal government for that you know i think there are a couple prongs to that one of them is um i think uh, activism and environmental and community organizing groups uh we're seeing i think a greater attention by the media whether it's uh, water shortages or flooding in California, I guess, in the last uh, uh, several months, at least on the flooding side, but certainly did a great job. And most of the media, I think, of talking about oh, water crisis issues in California um, or water crisis issues internationally. I think we're seeing more from the media along those lines. And so I commend that and think that environmental groups need to 
continue to take those kinds of initiatives to push that information out mm. um, and to recognize things like climate change um, are not very debatable in the real world, obviously, and right. it's important <laughs> uh, to uh, go against the political grain sometimes to be able to make that happen. And then I uh. think second to that uh, is we as managers in this area need to do a better job of explaining um, the risks uh, and need for rate increases in our business to be able to support in infrastructure changes. Because uh, in my business, again, we've taken some pride in trying to minimize risks by kicking them uh, down the road, as you would say, kicking the can down the road. Um, people have to recognize, as consumers need to recognize, that there are going to be greater costs that need to be borne, and rate increases will be out there because of that. But it's obligatory, I think, on us as professional managers and water, wastewater, whatever it may be, environmentally related issues, to talk about that in a way that people can understand and appreciate and um, and own. Uh, and <laughs> Advocate exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we live in, we all live, we tend to live in a bubble of like, yeah, though, turn on the tap, the water's clean, yummy. Um, for those of us who are not water challenged, I should say. Um, and but then I was struck, as I said before, in Des Moines, where the woman just shrugged at me and she said, "Well, of course we don't drink the tap water." You know, like, duh. <laughs> yeah, like that's acceptable. Yeah. Yeah, like it's just business as usual. Uh, we've bought, bought into some premises here that we're trying to uh, turn around, and that is yeah. that industrial ag necessarily should lead to these kind of consequences. That's unacceptable. I, I find it just fascinating that the farming community, um, but of course we're not really talking about the farming community qua farming, like what we think of as farms, right? We're talking about large right. agribusinesses. Absolutely. So, and when we talk about agriculture, you know, there there are some extraordinarily uh, responsible producers in the local foods movement, in the organic movement, in the CSA movement. Uh, our concern are the people far away from that. That is the industrial ag producers. Right. Uh, as you know, if you've ever been in this part of the Midwest, um, uh, we're talking about thousands of oh, yeah. uh, acres, not family farms. This is not Norman Rockwell or Grant Woods America. America uh, that dominate the farming culture in this state. It's industrial ag with a few huge owners mm -hmm. uh, that are continue to engage in practices with environmental and public health adversity. And that's why when when I brought up the fact that the, they, they said those fines would be crippling, you know, we're not talking about a mom and pop farm, a medium sized farm, you know, a guy who has maybe, I don't know, 500 acres or 1,000 acres. No. We're talking about somebody, yeah, right, with hundreds of thousands of acres under cultivation who is making plenty of money. So, Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I think it's important to make those distinctions also. I mean, I really, I feel like, it, you know, it's really, it's key to uh, make it clear that there are farmers and there is agribusiness. <laughs> like, Absolutely. And they are and, not the and same And realistically, thing. family farming is very much endangered by agribusiness. Absolutely. As the scale gets larger, the operations become more industrialized. Uh, smaller families, family farms are being pushed out in this and other states. Yeah, absolutely. Well, with that, I guess we should close. Um, Bill, thank you so much for joining us and to expl and explaining what is happening in Des Moines. And I'm so sorry that that federal suit uh, got thrown out. I'm just like, I'm still kind of gobsmacked about that. I thought your date was in June and that you had plenty of time. Uh. Anyway. So did we, Katie. Yeah. <laughs> but it's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me I appreciate on. It. Um, appreciate your time. Come uh, back. Media like you that are extraordinarily important in keeping the message moving forward <laughs> that we have to be environmentally responsible. Absolutely. I mean, I only wish that I had the reach of the New York Times, but 
you know, maybe in my future. Bill, thank you so much. And thank you so much to Bob's Red Mill for supporting my program. And um, thanks to my engineer, Dave. And we'll see you next week with another great show. Thanks for listening, people. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.